I have said throughout the Gospel of Mark series that the two big themes are Jesus' authority, establishing that Jesus has authority over everything, and the question of who he is. And what, what Mark wants to leave you with is a decision that I even prayed about at the beginning of our time together. That you've got to do something with this Jesus. And if there's ever a story that's going to demand an answer of you, it's this one today. If you've gone through the Gospel of Mark as the original readers would have, you've probably read it all in one sitting. And so you've seen him heal, and you've seen him calm storms, and you've seen him cast out demons. You've seen him transfigured on a mount, visited by, by the prophets of old. You've seen a lot, but if there's one thing he has done that demands of you an answer, demands of you a response, it's what we just saw, a human body that defeats death. And we're going to have that laid before us today, starting in verse 15. We'll go through it line by line like we do here. Starting in verse 15, we'll go through 42 and 43 again. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. We'll pause there for a moment. So, Jesus is dead. That's where I left you guys about a month ago. His last breath is taken on the cross. We just heard a Roman soldier declare, surely, this was the Son of God. And we're going into Sabbath. We're going into that Friday night where the entire Jewish community, their Passover weekend, they're going to take the next 24 hours off. And then we're introduced to a sort of peculiar character. Hasn't been mentioned one time throughout the Gospel of Mark. We're introduced to a guy named Joseph of Arimathea. Here's what we know about him. He's a member of the religious elite. We, we also know the folks that really wanted Jesus dead the most this weekend was the religious elite, but Joseph of Arimathea was, was one of them. He also wanted the kingdom of God, meaning he, he also wanted to see the, their version of the kingdom of God, Rome thrown off, and that there would be a kingdom back in Israel. So he's got an unpopular opinion uh, in his, his own group, because he's of the religious elite, but... He seemed to be curious about what this Jesus was talking about. He really wanted the kingdom of God. He might have thought Jesus was that guy. And in that context, Mark writes it correctly. He took courage. Consider the courage it would take to go show any kind of affection for the guy the entire city just wanted murdered. They, want, they wanted him executed. Every power, the religious and the political, wanted Jesus dead. And now Joseph of Arimathea wants to go to the most powerful man in the land and say, I want that body. I want to show him some honor. Verse 44. Pilate was surprised to hear that Jesus should have already died. And summoning the centurion, Pilate asked the centurion whether Jesus was already dead. And when Pilate learned from the centurion that Jesus was dead, Pilate granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking Jesus down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And Joseph rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus, saw where he was laid. So Jesus is laid to rest in haste. There was a lot of ceremonial, and I would even use the word affectionate items, that could have been administered to Jesus before his burial. But they're going into Sabbath. This has to get done quickly. So they just take him off the cross, wrap him in linen, and just sit him in a borrowed tomb. It's a kind of ignominious ending for this leader of a very large movement. We know from other Gospels that the heavy stone is placed in front of the tomb. There's even Roman soldiers placed outside of that tomb because 
They didn't want any body snatching. The Romans didn't want any, any rumor to come of what might come of Jesus' body. And so here at the end of chapter 15, the God-man is just laid to rest. And stop and stew in that for a moment. For 11 men, a very close friend is gone. For a mother, her son is buried behind the rock. Hopes are dashed. Plans are derailed. I imagine a devastated and listless people. That word, listless. Just totally rudderless. Don't know what to do. Peter and Andrew had left their fishing business. James and John, in just a couple chapters before, were asking Jesus, Hey, I know your kingdom's coming when it comes. Can we have like really important positions? All their plans for the future dashed. No idea what to do next. Sit and stew for a minute for what it means for that rock to be there and their friend, their son, their leader to be gone. Verse 16, sorry, chapter 16, verse 1 then. When the Sabbath was passed, as they stewed in and sat in all of that listlessness and sadness, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Jesus, and Salome bought spices so they might go and anoint Jesus. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, those ladies went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. So now it's the third day since Jesus' unjust execution. And these three ladies are going to do for the body of Jesus what they would have wanted to do if it wasn't going into the Sabbath. They're going to administer those ceremonial and affectionate items, spices. They say they just bought spices that they wanted to administer to the body. Notice the specificity Mark gives. He gives their names in large part because he wants to show authenticity. For the early readers, he's trying to get them to recognize, if you want to go find these women, you can ask them. They were there. They really saw an empty tomb. As I read through this, something did occur to me. For no one in the group was resurrection even an option. Jesus had hinted at it, even saying some cryptic things like, you tear down this temple, three days later I'll rebuild it. But there was no one in the group, no one in the upper room that even said to each other, you know, he did say that weird stuff about three days later. Maybe we should just go check. Let's just go look. Maybe, maybe you never know what's, what could be. That was not a conversation. This is over to them. It's done. These ladies are going to administer ceremony and affection to a dead body. Their system had no category for individual resurrection. Their entire category was at the end of everything, God will restore, restore all things. But not individual one resurrection. So these women are coming to this tomb, to this, uh, to this burial, with no hope of what they're about to see. I don't, as I read this too, I don't want to give any undue criticism to these ladies, but it does seem to be poor planning. They, they are going to a, a, a very heavy rock with no plan on how to get that thing out of the way. They just started talking about it on the way. That could show, though, that the poor planning, a testament to their grief. I think many of you in this room know what it's like to be in the fog of deep grief, where you're just not thinking straight. So they're going to do this administration of affection to Jesus' body. They're starting to worry about how they're even going to do it. And when they arrive, I imagine just talking to each other, they're having conversation, and they come around the corner and open tomb. 
When they get there, the giant rock is gone. There are no soldiers to deal with. The misalignment between their expectation and the reality they witness, it has to be jarring. And here's what I imagine for those women. I imagine fear. I imagine bewilderment. I imagine confusion. But I do not imagine hope. I don't think they had a category here as they saw the open tomb. What if he's alive? There's just bewilderment and confusion and fear. Verse 5. And entering the tomb... These ladies saw a young man sitting on the right side dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. So the women do their investigation. They want to go into the tomb, see what's going on. And really that word, this young man, it really means boy, like a young boy sitting where there should be a dead body. Yeah, I'd be alarmed too. That would, that, their reaction seems very, very rational to me. And then we get verses 6 and 7. This is where we're going to get most of our content today. Verses 6 and 7 is what this angel boy says to the ladies. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter, that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. These ladies get the greatest news anyone has ever heard. Even to this day for all of us, the greatest news we've ever heard. Jesus who was crucified, he is risen. He's not here. Look, they laid him right here. He's not here. He's risen. They're gonna, they get two commands here. We're going to talk about them in depth later. But these are the two themes that we're going to cover a lot today. He gives them two commands. Don't be alarmed and go. Don't be alarmed by what you're seeing, what you're experiencing, and go. Tell the disciples. He says, tell the, tell the disciples, if you were Jesus' messenger, I, th- I would imagine I might have a different message for the disciples. I just saw one of you totally deny me three times. All the rest of you abandoned me. You weren't even around, most of you weren't even around the cross for my final moments. I might have a little different message for you. I might have a little bit of con- con- condemnation, not commendation. But there's no word of reprimand. It's forgiveness already being there, saying, Jesus is where you guys are going anyway. He's, he's already on his way to Galilee. You're going to see him when you get home. He wants to meet you. He wants to be where you are. And then specifically, I love that he, he says to the disciples and Peter, like these nine or ten, just totally abandoned. This guy, Peter, he very spectacularly, probably in earshot of Jesus, said, I don't know this man, and cursed his name. He says, tell the disciples, and specifically, tell Peter. Again, imagine what you might want said to Peter if he did that to you. And instead, the angel specifically says to Peter, give him this astonishing news, and give him the news that Jesus has gone before him and wants to meet him, wants to talk. And that, that message of what, you need, of what they needed to know. So, hey, ladies, don't be alarmed. Also, go tell the disciples. And what do, you, what do they need to know? That Jesus is alive and he's, he's got a, a message for you. He wants to meet you. He wants to be in relationship with you. Let's, talk, let's do verse 8. And they, the ladies, went out and fled from the tomb. For trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Three points I want to make about this verse. First. This verse 8 is almost definitely, as in like 99% sure, this is actually the end of Mark. Mark, the guy who wrote the book, this is where he stopped. 
In a minute, we're going to talk about verses 9 through 20. We're not going to preach those verses because in the earliest manuscripts, they're not there. It's likely they were added later. We're going to talk about that in a minute in depth. But if it does end here, if it's correct that the last thing Mark wrote after this gospel, his last thing, doesn't actually even show us Jesus. He doesn't actually show back up. It's just an open tomb, and it's a command not to be alarmed and to go, and also ends with the ladies being afraid. Does that seem like a weird ending to you after all this? We don't even see Jesus, just have an empty tomb, and the, you end with fear for these ladies? I think, G, I think Mark does end here. Mark ends in verse 8. I think he does it for two reasons. One, I, th- I think it's, a, it's an open invitation. He, you know, we have the tomb open, obviously not so Jesus could get out. We see his body later. He can materialize through walls. We've already seen his immense power. It is nothing for him to, to move a stone. He didn't need the stone moved. We have a vision here at the end of Mark of just an open tomb, an open invitation. Come and see. You come and take your own look at the work of Jesus. Ending the book with that image is beautiful. That the cross has been, the image of cross is almost replaced with open tomb and an invitation for us to come and see. But it's also brilliant writing. This word, afraid, to end with fear, being afraid, is used three other times in the Gospel of Mark. And it's, it's moments of people being in awe of Jesus. And I, I think this is done on purpose. It's, it's escalating to a point that, I, that I, I loved as I studied it. Back earlier in the book, Jesus is in a boat with the disciples, and a storm comes on them that the writing makes it sound supernatural, like a demon caused, dark forces caused this intense storm. Just imagine that for a moment. We've all been at the beach during a thunderstorm, and from the end of the sky to the end of the sky, you can see this giant storm, and imagine one man on the beach or one man out on a boat just goes, stop it, and it dissipates. They saw Jesus do that, and the text says they were, they were afraid. What manner of man is this that even the winds and the seas obey him? That word fear was not afraid. They were in awe. They just knew, I'm in the presence of a power I didn't know existed. I'm in the presence of something different, something transcendent. Just a couple stories later, that boat lands and Jesus has coming at him a demonically possessed man. And Jesus cast the demons, legion of demons, into the pigs. The pigs run in to the water. I hope you remember that story. And the people who saw the change in that man, it says they were, this word, they were afraid. I don't think they were scared of him. They were in awe. They had seen what the, the power of this demon had in this man. It's the, they didn't ask the question, but it is almost them asking, what manner of man is this that even the demons obey him? That even they are subject to him. They are in all of his power. He controls weather and nature. Now he controls demons. And the final time it was used, it's my favorite story in all the Gospel of Mark. It's the woman with the issue of blood, years and years of dealing with this ailment, and she just touches the hem of Jesus' garment. She's immediately healed. And when Jesus says, who touched me? She was afraid. But it's not scared. She's in awe. I'm in the presence of a power that I didn't know was, was a, I didn't know existed. And now these ladies walking into this tomb and getting this message. He's not just powerful over storms. He's not just powerful over physical ailment. And he's not just powerful over demons. He beat death. 
and they're in awe of him. Whatever power this is, I wasn't ready for it. Whatever power this is, I didn't think it existed. They are mystified by the fantastic power Jesus has over everything. That's a fantastic place to end this gospel. Marveling at King Jesus and all of his power over everything. Storm and sickness and demon and death itself. That's a great place to end the gospel of Mark. Because it demands of you, what are you going to do with him? What are you going to do with this Jesus and all of his power over everything? I've asked it several times in the series. Are you going to make him your assistant or your mascot? Or are you going to bow to him as king overall? That's the text for today. As always, I have some points for you. I have three points I want to give you. But we're going to do something different for the next five or six minutes. In between the text and my application points, we're going to do a short little lecture. I promise it will be very short. Because I just said something somewhat provocative a minute ago, that verses 9 through 20 in Mark probably shouldn't be in your Bible. They, there's a lot of Bible translations. I know mine does. It has a little parenthetical here that says, the earliest manuscripts do not include verses 9 through 20. You might have that in your Bible. Other Bible translations have taken it out altogether. Because as we've done by we, not me, as the scholars have done the textual work over the years, and we collect more and more manuscripts of Bible copies, we find that the earliest documents don't have these verses. I'm tempted to skip over these things, but I want, I want you to know them for at least two reasons. One, we, we talk for good reason often here about getting in your Bible. We want you in your Bibles all the time. And I want you to know when, when you come across YouTube or TikTok or some video that tries to denigrate the, the transmission, the translation, the, the verity of these scriptures, uh, that their arguments are pretty bad, that we have great reason to believe this Bible. I want you confident in it. And the second reason is primarily for you young, young folks. So you 20 and unders, listen really quickly. I, I know a lot of what I'm about to tell you only because someone taught it to me. And I want you to have this information because, it, because it's important for you to have as especially skeptics of the faith will come along uh, on, your, on your feeds. I want you to have answers to this. Uh, specifically for me, I saw on one of the apps, I can't remember which one, uh, that there, uh, there was someone criticizing this particular part of Mark. That uh, I, th I think it's because my internet history has me studying Mark a lot, and I'm in a lot of Bible stuff, that it showed me a video of a guy saying, look, your earliest, your earliest manuscripts don't even have these verses, and they're in your Bible, so therefore you can't trust your Bible. I want you to be equipped to think through these. The, oh, uh, here, let's do it this way. That, that argument, that you can't trust your Bibles because some of your translations have, have, some, stuff that's not, um, have some stuff that's not in the original manuscripts, is weak for a few reasons. I'm going to blow your mind on a couple more of these. You know that the end of the Lord's Prayer is probably not in the earliest manuscripts? For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and amen. That's probably not in Jesus' prayer. That was added later by some folks to, it makes it more flowering. The entire story of the woman caught in adultery and he who's without sin cast the first stone, not in the earliest manuscripts. There's one verse in John that says there's an angel that, that stirred up the pool at Siloam for people to get in. That was uh, to get in and be healed. That was added later so that we the readers would know why someone wanted to get in the pool. And here's, here's how, why I want you to be confident. That's all they got. This is the most scrutinized book of the last yeah, several yeah. thousand years. Right. And it's scrutinized with bias. People want to prove it wrong. You've had a couple thousand years, and all you can come to me with is the ending of Mark, the pool of Siloam, the end of the Lord's prayer, and the woman caught in adultery. That's all you got? 
This book stands against all scrutiny and all of its skeptics. You can trust in it. And I wanted to stop for that short lecture just to say to you, we want you in it because it's all you need for life and godliness and you can trust it. Get in there. And it's also why we end the text right there because the earliest manuscripts don't have verses 9 through 20. All right. That's the text. That's the lecture. Three points. Three points I have for you here on Resurrection Sunday. Number one, the undeniable truth of resurrection. Number one, the undeniable truth of resurrection. One of the categories or genres of sermons on Easter Sunday is proving the resurrection. I am confident hundreds of thousands, if not millions of men will come to a pulpit this, on this day and they will prove to their congregations that resurrection happened. They'll treat you like the jury and they're the attorney and they make a very good case. And I think there's value in that. There's value in doing that from time to time. I would argue that any non-biased rational mind would have trouble. denying the resurrection of Jesus. I don't want to spend a ton of time on it, but it's worth doing. It's worth giving some, maybe some arguments you haven't heard before for a moment to establish the undeniable truth of resurrection. Here's how I want to do it. I hope you know this in history. Jesus was by no means the first messianic movement. There were lots of men before Jesus who rose up and said, I'm the Messiah. And they gathered some guys And they've challenged Rome, and Rome won. And in all of those times when someone rose up and said, I'm the Messiah, and gathered a bit of a group, Rome would get a hold of that rebel, that Messiah figure. They would kill that Messiah figure, and his movement would dissipate. It'd be gone as quick as it it came. It's therefore, then, important for all of us, if you're in the room and you're a believer, or you're not a believer, you're a skeptic, you're not really sure where you stand— it's really important that we answer the question of why Jesus was different. Every other Messiah figure that Rome killed, their movement ended. Rome got a hold of Jesus, killed him, and 300 years later, his movement is the official religion of the Roman Empire. 2,000 years later, there's 80 people in a hole in Greenville, South Carolina, worshiping him as the risen Savior. Why was he different? Why was his movement different of all the others? There are... Some skeptics that make the argument, well, the apostles lied. They made it up. Listen, I I have been watching enough true crime over the last year to know this. When people lie, they do it to get stuff. They're either trying to escape a consequence. They're trying to get some money. When people lie, they're trying to get a good thing. These guys told a story that got them killed. It got all their stuff taken. Listen, people will die for a lie, but not if they know it's a lie. People don't make up a lie and then die in its cause. Now, there are people, I think of religious zealots and let's go Islam. They're, they're dying for a lie, but they don't think it's a lie. These men would have been the one that had to make it up. They got no fame, no fortune. They didn't get out of anything. It, it wrecked them. A lot of them were, were, uh, were torn limb from limb. They were the martyrs. Of course, it, of course, they didn't think it's a lie. That's an argument some skeptics will make. I think this is actually one of the less aggressive questions to bring up to your unbelieving friends, your unbelieving siblings. You don't even, even have to ask the question. Just bring it up. Why was Jesus different? Why is he the only messianic figure that when he died, his movement didn't die? Why is he the only messianic figure that when he died, his movement flourished? We have the actual answer. It's because he's alive. Because he stopped being dead. 
The same way he said to the storm, quit. He said to death, you're done. I'm dominant over you as well. The, I, I would say to the, to the skeptics or to, and those outside the faith, folks, that we love, you should let the historic material challenge your worldview. You should allow the evidence to compel you to think about Jesus and his, the, the verity, the undeniable truth of his resurrection and then wrestle with that. What am I going to do with a man raised from the dead? Now, I, I have very little interest in any more than we just have for the last three or four minutes challenging folks not in this room. Yeah, we, we could beat up on folks who look at really the incontrovertible evidence of Jesus' resurrection and reject it. We could, we could mock them. But I want to be careful that we don't make the same mistake they do. The material is also incontrovertible, not, is incontrovertible for Jesus' reigning, not just his rising. I am concerned that we will worship him today as only the risen king and not the reigning king. The, the material is unquestioned in this book. He's king. And I don't want to leave the Gospel of Mark. I'm done with it. It's been, I've loved doing this. But one of the big themes is you being demand, having the question demanded of you. What are you going to do with Jesus? He claims to be king. And so before we're finished with the Gospel of Mark, I want to say it one more time. He's king, and what are you going to do with it? What are you keeping from him? Is it some kind of financial plan? Is it some opinion you have on how you parent? If it's a plan you have for the future, a talent that you're not using, there's something, if it's anything, you're keeping under the lordship of Jesus, you're not thinking any better than the skeptic. You're not thinking any better than the unbeliever. They are rejecting the incontrovertible proof of his resurrection, and you are rejecting the incontrovertible proof of his reigning over everything. He's king over all. Let the material affect your worldview. Listen, that's painful. I've had it affect mine over the years. It's painful to have to give over something. I, I love my autonomy. I love, I love me being in control. But to give it over to a good king, it can be painful. But it's a good, good thing. So number one, there's the undeniable truth of his resurrection. Number two, the graceful invitation of resurrection. The graceful invitation of resurrection. It is again telling to me that this angel didn't have any condemnation for the disciples or the women. Not one word of correction for their spectacular failure, failures. He just gives them those commands. Don't be alarmed and go. Jesus is waiting on you. He even has the good news that the Lord's gone before you. Where you're going, he's already there. He wants to meet you. He's not mad at you. He doesn't want a, a time period of giving you the silent treatment. Like He wants you where he is. Even the specification to Peter, like the disciples, and specifically, don't let Peter feel left out because his failure was worth the, was worse than the others. You might be in this room today and you think that. You think, yeah, in general, this room is full of failures, but you don't know my failure. Maybe I don't, but I know Jesus does. I know that he knew Peter's failure was worse than the rest of them, and he says, I'm naming you specifically. Come on back. Often, the most spectacular failures are the ones that end up with the most inspiring redemptions. These were spectacular failures, and they were invited back, and I want you to hear that today. If you are far from God, if you are in gross sin that you are keeping secret, if you are just stale and not really interested or participating in any kind of spiritual life, can I tell you this? He's not mad at you. He's not mad at your doubting. He's not mad at your denying. You are invited in, in, in repentance of those sins because there is wrath for sin. 
He wants you back. If you're astray, if you're stale, you're none of us would ever be scandalized by that. Listen, I'll be finished here in about ten minutes. I'm gonna stand right there and sing a song with you. You can come tap me on the shoulder. I'd love to talk. Talk to somebody you talk to somebody you trust. Work that out with somebody. If you're being called back into something, that's that's going to not something you not going to be something you do alone. That happens in community. It happens in friendship. So hear that. There's a graceful invitation to resurrection that the messenger of resurrection to these women was a word of forgiveness and invitation. There is an empty tomb for you to walk into and take a look. He's not there, but he, was, he goes before you and still wants to be in relationship with you. Hear that today. If you are astray, come on back. So on the undeniable truth of resurrection to the graceful invitation of resurrection, and the last one is the longest one. The enduring commands of resurrection. The enduring commands of resurrection. Okay, I have two here for you. The angel said, don't be alarmed. We're going to call that category freedom from the world. So don't be alarmed. There's freedom from the world. And then finally, the angel says, go. And that's freedom for the world. Freedom for the world. I think this next sentence, I'm going to say, no one would argue with me in this room. This world is alarming. We are given a command, don't be alarmed. But man, it, it wouldn't take long of you grabbing your phone and starting to scroll that you would say, no, I'm alarmed. This is a very alarming world. I, I mentioned your device because I, I, there's a, a very powerful device in most of your pockets with very powerful algorithms behind it that want you alarmed. They want you scared. They want you angry because those are addictive feelings and you have to go back to them to get it. At the same time, while there are powerful forces far from you trying to get you alarmed, there's also just the reality. We live in the world of devastating tornadoes and mass shootings and unrest and violence and conflict. Even more personal, we lose people we love. There's financial stress, job instability. There are lost family members and siblings. There are wayward children in this room. There are alarming things in this world. Particularly in this age where we live, it's negative, it's cynical, it's skeptical. So we experience all these alarming things in a very negative age, but we're not the people that face those things without hope. I love that we started with that reading today. I didn't know you were going to start with it. We are not the people that experience alarming things without hope. I, I love the song that we sing. I'm going to quote that line because it occurs to me now. We live in a world where we can answer yes. Do you feel the world is broken? Yeah, we do. But do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through? Yeah, I feel it in my bones. I know it in my bones it's going to be made right. We can suffer well. We can be in an alarming world and not act alarmed because we are the people facing all those things with the promise of resurrection. We can face those things and don't have to be alarmed because we know how the story ends. We read it this morning that Jesus was the first fruits of resurrection. He's just a taste of what's to come. Romans says if we are united to him in his death, we'll be united to him in resurrection. If Christ is raised, and listen, he is raised, you don't have to be alarmed. Jesus, through that angel, doesn't give them, doesn't just give them comfort for living in this alarming world. He doesn't just give them a there, there, it's going to be okay. Here's some consolation for what you're suffering. Here's some consolation for your alarm. That's not what's promised here in resurrection. What's promised here is not 
to be made to feel better about a bad thing, but that the bad things become untrue. That full reconciliation and restoration of all the bad things goes away. You're not just made to feel better about bad stuff. The bad stuff stops. The people you lost, you get back. The conflict ends. Injustice is responded to with justice. That's the promise of resurrection. And when you know that's coming, you can face an alarming world with a lot of hope. Whatever your imagination is for what resurrection means in the end, the power of Jesus defeating death, whatever your imagination is for all of us experiencing that in the end, it's much too small. We have no idea what is to come in the reconciliation powered by the resurrection of Jesus and his victory over death in the grave. Now, we are told don't be alarmed. We don't have to be alarmed because the power of Jesus is resurrection. But can we consider for a minute trying to endure the alarming and su- alarming things and the suffering of this world and not have that? To not have that hope. Suffering in that world where you don't have that hope, that's devastating. We're about 50 years in now to what the anthropologists and the philosophers call the postmodern era. I would argue we're even past it now. The postmodernism that started started infusing into our songs and our literature and our movies, our our plays, the postmodernism that infused itself into our art and then into our minds says there is no hope. There's no objective reality. You make up your own reality. There's just... There is, not, there is no consolation. No, things aren't going to be made right in the end. All you have is this life. And so, of course, it's a devastating thing to, to suffer in this world, to be alarmed in this world when you have no hope. And so the human heart, the last 50 years, really for all of, all of history, it is experiencing suffering. It doesn't have any hope, and so it just tries to respond to the suffering with stuff and wealth and experiences and romantic entanglements and entertainments. We try to numb. They're trying to numb. The, the watching world's trying to numb their meaninglessness with stuff. And then that consequence is it ultimately ends up being empty. The money runs out. The high ends. The relationship Closes the approval you ha- or breaks up the approval you had of those people goes away and over and over again people just find when there's no hope in Jesus there's no hope in resurrection that there's just emptiness and they're they're being told this this world that needs this message of resurrection is being told there is no meaning to any of this all the while Ecclesiastes tells us that eternity is written on the heart of humanity and there are hurting men and women all over the place that are being told, don't long for anything better, don't long for anything eternal, but something in them tells them there's something there. So of course that emptiness leads to where we are, more depressed than we've ever been, more high anxiety than we've ever been, we're more hopeless than we've ever been. As hopelessness is dangerous, it's also prevalent. You live in a hopeless place, and we have the only answer to it. The only answer is the power of the resurrection of Jesus. And the hope it gives, the meaning it gives to the alarming nature of this world. I want to finish this first point just by quoting from C.S. Lewis like I often do. As I was thinking about this, my favorite C.S. Lewis quote and concept came to mind. We're living in a time where a bunch of people are alarmed. They're trying to respond to it with stuff. It doesn't work. 
try to respond to it with experiences. It doesn't work. They feel empty. They want something eternal. They want something more. Lewis said, just the fact that I feel hungry tells me there's got to be food. Food must, food must exist. Otherwise, the concept of it, my body wouldn't crave it. If I'm thirsty or I'm tired, it just that concept shows there, there must be some answer to the craving. Going to sleep would cure my fatigue. Having some water would cure my thirst. The fact that I desire something means there has to be something to fulfill it. Therefore, actually we now have this on our wall at the house. He said, if I find in myself a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, I can only conclude I was made for another world. And we have a bunch of images of God out there that were made for another world and they're trying to fill in all the emptiness and meaninglessness that comes from being so alarmed in this world with stuff that cannot fulfill it. Which then leads us to the final word here. We have, don't be alarmed for you. You have freedom from the world and its troubles because of the power of resurrection. But then that final word he gives them is then go. There's a lot of people that need to know about this resurrection. That's freedom for the world. We know before Jesus ascends, he gives the gospel commission. We say it here every week before we conclude. Go therefore, preach the gospel to all nations. The angel in that tomb sent the ladies to share good news with the disciples. Jesus later tells all of his disciples to go share the news of his resurrection, of his reign, of his kingdom. And by extension, it's us. By extension, we are to go share that news. And it's in this resurrection that we know God's heart for humanity. It's very clear. It's again not just for consolation. It's for restoration. It's for reconciliation. It's for that great Tolkien line. It's for all the sad things to become untrue. And so here we are in this room. We are the conduits for the power of resurrection to go out into a world that's dead. A dead and dying world. We're intended to be the, the folks that bring life to dead relationships and life to broken minds, broken hearts, to toxic environments. We are the people that break terrible cycles. That's who we are because we have the power of resurrection. We can bring it to a broken and hurting world. Everywhere you go, to home, to work, to school, how you interact online, community events, wherever you go, you take the power of resurrection with you to bring through the gospel and through loving your neighbor, neighbor the power that of Jesus' resurrection to the world that needs it. We have the most wonderful story ever to tell. That the resurrection of our bodies is true. That being restored and brought back with the ones that have gone before, those who are in Christ, we have a story of the world being made right again through the power of Jesus' resurrection over death. It's time for us to go. So there is... The undeniable truth of resurrection. There is that graceful invitation of resurrection. Come on back. And then there are those enduring commands. Don't be alarmed. By the power of Jesus' resurrection, you have what you need to live in hope. And then go. Share with somebody the power of this, res this, this resurrection. Let me pray for us. As